Hey, everybody, and welcome back to this bonus episode of Adventures in DevOps. I'm here with Adam. Is it Kmore? I should have asked before the show. That was great. You nailed it the first time. Yeah, you're from uh, Tonic.ai. And what's interesting is I love getting these interesting folks to come on and kind of talk about what they do. In your case, Adam, I was looking at the website for Tonic, and I was like, man, where was this? (laughs) Right when I was working for a financial institution or medical data or even just, I don't want to put my customer's information on my machine or on the CICD machine, right? And, and testing data is kind of one of those things that, especially at scale, is just really hard to do. And I'm kind of curious if you want to just introduce yourself and give some background as to how you came up with, oh, we should solve this problem. Because... I mean, it it really sucks to try and figure out how to do it on your own. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to go into that background. Uh, So everyone, hi everyone, my name's Adam and I'm one of the co-founders at Tonic.ai. Again, that's Tonic.ai, so you can check us out at Tonic.ai. So we came up with this idea about four years ago, we being myself and my co-founders. I think we, we kind of landed on it because it was a problem that we'd all faced in our roles as engineers at previous companies or places that we'd worked. Mm-hmm. It was also a problem that we felt uniquely able to solve because of our experience working for various companies that work with and deal with data. Like we were all like, you know, pretty focused on data in our day-to-day jobs. So we felt like able to actually solve this problem. Like it was, it was tractable for us as opposed to like going solving something in an industry where we don't really know anything about it. And it's it's really been great for that reason because A, like we, we can see ourselves every day as the customers and it mm-hmm. allows us to kind of like build the tool that we would have used and that our, our customers need today. And I think that the tool and the product have really benefited from that. Right. So I'm I'm a little curious just as we dive in and just to give a little bit of context too. So my last full-time job was with Morgan Stanley. So you can imagine we're dealing with some pretty sensitive customer data, right? I can't tell you how many trainings I sat through where it was like material non-public information. You have to protect material non-public information. Oh my gosh, save the information, right? I mean, it's just, and I'm, I, it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we're collecting the the pro- app I worked on. We were collecting basically compensation data and things like that. And some of that is protected. The way they define personally identifiable information is kind of the other end of things. And I've also worked on apps where they had to comply with like HIPAA and things like that. But the problem that we ran into, at least initially, and we didn't have a good solution for was I got to pull, I got to have a database set up on my local machine so that I can build the app against it so that it works and so that I can see it operate similar to what it would do in production. But since I'm working from home, we really don't want production data on my machine. I'm assuming you've worked on similar apps, right? Where you have kind of that same issue. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And like, it goes beyond just having production data on your local machine. It's common now, organizations don't want their developers even having access to it on company machines, on the company network, in the office, mm-hmm. right? The, the goal is, of course, to remove it from mm-hmm. you know local machines, but really to, to restrict access as much as possible to production data. So well, like, I'm sorry? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, just for my own personal liability, if I can't see it, then I'm not the one that leaked it. That's right. For your own liability, uh, for, for your employer's liability, for mm-hmm. the sake of the customer and, and their users. Yeah, it's 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 good for everyone to restrict access right. uh, without a doubt. And I think Tonic's been around for four years, like I said. And maybe four years ago, we saw folks uh, like as we were doing customer interviews or, or potential customer interviews and just kind of chatting with, with with friends and colleagues and former coworkers. It was not common, but you would see like using production data in test and dev environments. And we really don't see that at all anymore. I think 
companies are, are moving away from that pretty quickly. And I'm sure it still happens, mm-hmm. but I think much less so than even four years ago. Well, to the extent that we even got close to it, the security team at Morgan Stanley would come and say, you've got to stop doing that. Oh, yeah. And, I, and I'm and i not sure how many years ago that was, but I bet now it's, it's it was even last more year. forceful. Okay. okay. That's good. <laughs> so, and it, it's getting yeah. more forceful every day, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see some of these breaches and yeah, some of them it's like, oh, we didn't update our MySQL server or whatever. Right. And so it was That's just right. an opening that somebody found. But yeah, sometimes it's, oh, we kind of socially engineered our way over to where it was actually legitimately stored. And so these kinds of things really make a difference. But the other thing is, is that at the same time, a lot of the performance characteristics and things like that of the systems that I've worked on depended on how much data was there and being able to kind of fake it or obscure it or things like that. And I've written some of those scripts and that's that's not a whole lot of fun either. No, it's not. So, I mean, I think that's really the crux of the problem, right? Like when you can't use production data for development and staging anymore, you need something that is as close to the production data as you can get. Right. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the closest thing is just copying it over. And the furthest thing away is like building something like handcrafted from scratch. And, and you really right. shouldn't do either. Well, the copying the production directly, we've already talked about why we shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And building something from scratch is actually quite challenging. And and companies that do it, I think what th- there's a few like different things that typically happen, right? Like a, a lot of companies will have dev and test data, which like few people have kind of inserted some rows in just kind of manually. Or maybe mm-hmm. they kind of use the application for a few minutes to generate a few rows or something like this. And those databases are very poor imitations of production. They typically lack right. the scale and complexity of your production data. The other the other thing that we see is companies will actually try to build their own internal tools for generating test data. The problem with that is if you want data, like if you just want a database where there is values in every column that match the appropriate data type, okay, you can go mm-hmm. do that. Right. Like you can write a Python script that's going to get that done for you. It might take a few days, but you can do it. But if you want data, I think all of them have faker libraries. Yeah. And it's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like a fake fake email, fake name, fake this, fake that. Right. Do it over and over and over again. Yeah. But that absolutely doesn't work for any realistic like application where like the the application is going to have certain like unknown constraints in it where it makes assumptions Mm -hmm. like, oh, if the value in this column is this. And the value in this other column in this unrelated in this seemingly unrelated table has to be this, this or that, but it can never be this other thing. Right. Right. Like there's all these types of like business constraints that your application assumes to be true, that if they're mm-hmm. not true in the database, the application won't even work like that is right. incredibly common. OK. And well, we up, oh, the other thing is early in my career, I worked QA and never underestimate your customer's ability to do something you don't expect. That's right. Do. Oh, a hundred percent. So. What you end up needing to do, if you want to build your own internal application for generating test data, that internal application you build is going to end up having like the same level of complexity as the actual business application. Right. Because it needs to, to be aware of all of those same constraints so it can build realistic data. So it becomes like very untenable very quickly to actually build a tool to generate test data. And that is where Tonic comes in because we have solved the problem. And we actually can generate very realistic test data from your production data set. Yeah, it makes sense. Now, I just want to kind of uh, touch on a few of the other areas that that I see this come in. I mean, we talked about running in production or test, but also CICD is another place, right? And then the last one is, and and I'll probably ask you about this a little bit further down the line, but we have a machine learning show and having good 
test data to ingest into your models and things like that is also important. That's right. So, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that later as well. That's a that's a use case that we we see. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, before we really dive into okay, this is tonic and this is what it does. I think people kind of get gene- generically the idea. What makes a good data set then, right? How how do you make your data set without some hokey script that just kind of puts kind of the same looking stuff all over the place and doesn't give you that level of uh, diverse data that you're dealing with. How do you, how do you make a data set that looks like your production data? So sure. that, yeah. Oh, so the crap that's going to break in production is going to break for me. That's right. So it's challenging. I'd say that the first rule of generating a good data set is to change as little as possible from production. And that seems like opposite to what we're saying because we want to de-identify the production database, right? Uh, or to anonymize it or choose whatever term you like. But yeah. a, a lot of data in that database isn't sensitive and it can't be linked back to users. So right. you want to change as little as possible. At Tonic, like the in our in Tonic's like terminology and product documentation and probably product marketing, we call those pass-through columns. These mm-hmm. are columns that we're just going to pass through from production to out to to test. Yeah, These- I mean that when we wrote our script at Morgan Stanley, that's effectively what it did, right? Is it we we picked the columns and then somebody's name was redacted fifty, redacted fifty one, or something like that. That's right. That's right. So then after you pass through what you can, you then want to like well, a lot of like the constraints that I'm talking about from earlier, mm-hmm. a lot of them are related to like primary and foreign keys and how rows and mm-hmm. different tables relate to each other. Okay. So you want you want to change as little as possible when it comes to primary and foreign keys. Now, most of the time, or not most of the time, but for many for many databases, primary and foreign keys aren't really considered PII. They don't really have sensitive right. information. They're typically just like integers generated from sequences. Mm-hmm. Um, or GUIDs or something or, like or that. Or GUIDs or something like this. But occasionally they actually do contain PII. And it, it sounds odd, but mm-hmm. you know, there's there's all types of architectures out there. And, and sometimes people do put PII mm-hmm. into primary and foreign key columns. So you need to be able to then de-identify those columns. And that can be challenging, right? For a few reasons. One, primary keys have to be unique. So you mm-hmm. need a data transformation that is going to uniquely map the current set of primary keys to a new set of primary keys. And remember, it has to be unique. There can't be any collisions because if there's mm-hmm. collisions, then you're not going to be able to insert the rows into the output database. Right. And that transformation also has, has a requirement that whatever it does, it, it can't do it like at random because whatever transformation is applied to the primary keys, you have to then go apply it to all of the foreign keys that reference the given primary key. And it has mm-hmm. to be done in a way where like if you encounter primary key value five, six, seven in one column, and then you encounter it again in a referencing column, they both need to get mapped to the same new integer, right? right? And it's, it's we call that consistency in the product. But these transformations mm-hmm. have a lot of requirements on them. So they're actually right. quite complex to build. And don't forget, it also has to be done privately, right? Like mm-hmm. one transformation that satisfies this is, oh, whenever you see an integer, add one, right? That would mm-hmm. satisfy the requirements of being consistent and unique. But th- right. that's, not a, that's not a secure generator. Right. Right. So then, okay, so you've, you've kind of, you've passed through the, the columns that you can, or maybe even entire tables that you can. You've kind of dealt with the primary and foreign keys. Either you, you pass them through or you, you modify them in a way that won't break referential integrity. And then it comes mm-hmm. time to actually like identify and then transform your private data. So those are actually like two pretty big steps. It's very typical for our customers to come to us with databases with, I mean, a thousand plus tables in them and 10,000 plus columns, Right. So identifying where the sensitive information is, is a step in its own, right? Like that, that can take mm-hmm. time. 
So with Tonic, we actually help bootstrap our customers by running various scanners on top of their database to identify what columns are sensitive. Um, and like any like good PII detection algorithm, there's false positives, there's false negatives. Right. Like we'll we'll look at a five digit number and say it's a zip code when in fact it's not, and we might miss like a name column or something like this. Even mm-hmm. though that that's actually not a good example because we're pretty good with names, but we'll certainly miss PII as well. But it's a way to like go from zero to like ninety five percent very quickly, essentially right. with the push of a button and you know waiting a few mm-hmm. minutes. So you got to identify all the PII. And without like special tooling for doing that, a database of like a medium to large complexity, that's actually really hard to do. Like especially like in applications that are older where like there's no one at the company that knows this, right? Like it requires like working with 30 different people. Um, Yeah, I just, I want to kind of add to this because if you've dealt with it, I mean, because I've been in the middle of some of these conversations, right? Where it's like, okay, what do we actually have to obscure, right? what data counts as PII, right? And sometimes there are legal requirements like somebody's name or this or that, right? That's right. You get into some of the other stuff like HIPAA where it's, you know, medical stuff and a lot of that is also defined by law. But a lot of times it's also just rules by administrative organizations, governmental and non-governmental that that make those determinations. And then some of it's just kind of, we just want to make sure that we're protecting people's privacy, right? Nobody's telling us we have to hide that data. But the reality is, is that if you have this data and this other data, you can figure out who the person is. 100%. And so it's it's tricky, right? It's It's not just straightforward. It's like, it's not just name, address, phone number. I mean, some of the other ones that I've seen that that really kind of got weird were like security questions and answers, right? Where somebody puts in their mother's maiden name or the elementary school they went to or things like that, right? That's all PII. And so it you have to have somebody that can go in and robustly identify it. And and it's really a lot harder than you think unless your application is so simple that it's like, hey, all the information about the users in one database table. But yeah, called the user table. Great. Yeah. And if you live in that world, you're not going to stay there very long. That's right. A hundred percent. You know, I was, uh, you mentioned security questions. I was, I had joined a website the other day. I actually don't remember what it was, but I think it was, God, actually, I'm not even sure. But anyways, I had to go fill out security, security questions as I was creating my account. And I'm looking at these questions and the questions are all like things that like someone that does some research could figure out the answers if they, mm-hmm. if they know me at all. And I ended up just typing in absolute garbage, just like random keys. Because I would rather have no answers than answers to those questions. I really like, with the questions they asked, I really felt like it was actually making the account less secure. For example, your your mother's maiden name, right? Like, depending on who you are, you could maybe find that on Google. Um, Yeah. And it just, it did not make me feel safe. But to your point- Well, it's on public records like your birth certificate and stuff. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I really, I, I, yeah, that's why I just, I just typed in a bunch of garbage. But, and you know what, to to the conversation we're having, that would probably be hard to identify. But if people are actually putting in legitimate answers, well, it's still hard to identify. I have a, I have a good example along those lines. It's like, let's say you're trying to find PII in like free form text, like doctor's notes. And it's like, okay, well, Adam came in today and he complained his knee hurt. Well, that's governed by HIPAA. And finding Adam in that sentence and recognizing it as a name, okay, yeah, I, I can I can mm-hmm. see that happening. It's actually pretty hard to do, but it's possible. But then imagine the president came in today. It could be the president of the United States or the president of the company, but with context, you could probably identify who they're talking about and think how challenging that is for a privacy scanner to identify programmatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like names and whatnot, sure. But if you say, oh, like the, the sheriff came in or the president came in or my mom came in, it gets really, right. really hard to find that kind of stuff. So having tools to help you is great, 
but even the tools are imperfect for the examples that you and I are giving. Yeah. Well, a lot of it too, it's not a standard. Yeah. It's not a standard field where that's where you're going to look. So yeah, that's absolutely right. And in fact, our, our, our privacy scanner does very well on structured data. But when it comes to like freeform text, like what I was describing, we actually we, we typically don't operate on those types of columns at the moment, just for the just for the problems that just for the reasons that we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. So. So, yeah. So what do you do? Right. Right. So, well, we're talking about how how does Tonic do this? Like, what's the magic? Well, we kind of got to the point where I said, OK, well, there's the identification and then there's the actual transformation of when you've identified. And mm-hmm. uh, for the for the identification, I think we can all agree it's non-trivial. And that's like that's like a huge step by itself. For those description fields, when we find them, we we typically won't try to classify them as PII. But I mean, that's that's back to the statement I made. Like the the scanner will get you to ninety five percent, and then it, it's likely going to miss some stuff. And that's an example of something it would miss at the moment. But I mean, six months from now, it probably won't. Our tool is constantly improving. I would say. And once the data has been identified as to what's sensitive and what's not, then you got to go and actually apply additional transformations. Uh-huh. The transformations can range from like incredibly simple to like insanely complex. Like here's a really simple transformation. And believe it or not, this is actually probably the safest transformation you can apply. And we call it the null generator. And it will replace all values in a column with null. That that's really simple. Anyone, anyone, it'll work. Anyone can write that generator. And it's incredibly private because it completely nukes all the data. Right. There isn't a more private generator, I would say, than applying the null generator. But the utility of that data is now very poor. Right. So like right. as you're making these decisions on how to transform your data, you're you're constantly having to weigh the the privacy of the transformation you're applying and then the utility of the output data set. And those two things typically move opposite each other. As you increase the privacy of that output data set, the utility of the data is going to go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and vice versa, of course. So tonic makes it like like if I had to describe tonic to, I don't know, someone that wasn't in engineering, I would say essentially it's a little control knob that allows you to turn the control knob left or right, clockwise or counterclockwise, to kind of like change the ratio of privacy to utility. And that, right. that's essentially what it's doing by what transformations you apply on different columns. That, that, that's really at the end of the day what it does. So, right. yeah. Now let me give you like, you know, an example of, of a transformation that's not the null generator. It's a little more sophisticated. Let's say you have a column of names. Right. Well, mm-hmm. you could just apply a random name in every row. That's mm-hmm. actually pretty safe as well, assuming the names that you're you're choosing at random are completely independent of the underlying source data set. Right. Like right. That's that that's pretty safe right there. That's that's yeah. basically as good as a null generator. But that's actually not very useful because like in that ideal world, you have a per- perfectly relational database. There's a column of names and everywhere else in the database, there's just a foreign key back to that name table. Mm-hmm. Right. But th- that that never happens in the real world. And what ends up happening right. is you have this name column in like 10 different places. So you have usernames scattered throughout <laughs> your dictionary, throughout your database, right? Like I'm laughing because it's true. Right. Yeah, that's like oh, it how is. it always goes. Oh, yeah, 100%. So you then need a transformation that like, okay, my name's Adam. So every time you come across an Adam, we could choose a name at random, but then then mm-hmm. like the, the relationships between all, all these 10 different columns that have names are going to be completely screwed up. Or yeah. every time we come across Adam, we can replace it with the same fake name each time. That goes back to that con- that concept of consistency that I was talking about earlier, right? Right. So Tonic gives you the choice, right? Consistency increases the utility of that output data set greatly, right? Because mm-hmm. now it allows you to maintain links between different tables. But it does reduce the privacy because now you're opening yourself up right. to, for example, a frequency attack on your data. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, back to the control knob analogy, 
it, it's allowing you to choose. Okay, do I go more private and not use consistency, or do I go less private, more utility, and enable mm-hmm. consistency? Okay. Right. So we have a lot of generators that take that approach of either random or random but consistent, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and then we have more like mathematical generators, things that will like preserve distributions, both numerical and categorical. And so like, you know, they'll, they'll preserve like the shape of data. So like a trivial example, and you had mentioned this earlier was like, let's say you're looking at income data or rather salary or compensation data, right? You might yeah. want to preserve things like the average salary for a given occupation or for a given title, mm-hmm. or maybe like the, uh, or other like aggregate properties of, of the distribution. Right. We have generators that, that will handle those types of uh, challenges. Uh, and then we have a similar set of generators that work on categorical data. Right. Like categorical mm-hmm. data, like uh, an example would be like the make and model of cars. Right. Th- those are good. Right. Those are good, simple categories that everyone understands. Right. Like it might be that. Yep. OK, well, Ford appears 30 percent of the time in this table, but really it's 30 percent of the time. But it's actually 90 percent of the time if the person lives in this state or that state. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can preserve those types of relationships as well. That's like kind of like a oh, level. That's up. interesting. Yeah. So that's like a level yeah. up from consistency. Yeah, that's then, one thing that we were okay. dealing with some of our data, too, was that if you had the company name and we had like their because we were tracking executive compensation was really what we were doing. So if you have the company name and you know that their position is CEO, I mean, two seconds on Google on most of these companies would get you a name. Yes. Right. So and so but it but at the same time, we were running reports off of that data based on their job title and things like that. So that was. That was hard. <laughs> That's right. Right. So one, one approach you have when you have this type of categorical data and you just want to like you want to like basically choose a random value per row, but still kind of maintain mm-hmm. those like those relationships would be to, for example, not not uh, sample values that occur infrequently. Right. Those outlier values. Get rid of them because outliers are more identifying. And again, mm-hmm. that but outliers are also interesting. Those can sometimes be your edge cases. Right. Right. So like. Again, it comes back to privacy versus utility and what the trade-offs are and what your risks are and, and what your threat model is and, and kind of like making an informed decision that way. And like the, the final group of transformations we have that are, well, this is embarrassing, but they're so complicated, I can't adequately explain them to folks because I don't really work on them very often, are our mm-hmm. transformations that are, are built on top of like machine learning algorithms and models related to like GANs and neural nets. And, mm-hmm. and these are transformations that will basically look at a table holistically and then generate new rows for that table just based on a model that it's built of the table and the, mm, the, the a model of okay. the relationships between the columns. Right. Um, but unfortunately, I, I can't answer much more about that. That's that's more the purview of our uh, data science team. Right. And when you're talking about GANs and things like that, just give people a little bit of context. I can't remember what the G stands for, but um, I think generative. Yeah, adversarial neural networks, right? And so, it, yeah. you know, you have algorithms that kind of compete over how... Anyway, we've talked a whole bunch about this on uh, Adventures in Machine Learning, if you're interested in learning more about those. Oh, hey, go I'm, find those I'm, episodes. Sure, I'm sure one, our, our head of data scientists would love to to come on and talk about it. That, that wouldn't hurt anybody's feelings. But anyway, it's... Yeah, so effectively what it is, is they they set things up and you have a system that as best as possible is trying to do better and better at mimicking what's already there, right? Yeah, I, or, I, I think at a I think at a high level, I think that's right. Yeah. And so I don't want to spend a whole bunch of time explaining how it works because that's not what we're here to talk about. But I think that's really interesting just in the sense that, yeah, then I can just hand off a database table and instead of saying, okay, go munge all the stuff that needs to be munged so I don't get in trouble. Now it's, it's go create a data set that looks like this data set. 
That's right. So, you know, you kind of asked me, like, I think the, the thing that led to all of these explanations was, okay, well, like, what does tonic do? How does it work? So there, there's one last step that I haven't really talked about yet. It's like, okay, we, we have passed through what we can. We've, we've handled our primary and foreign key relationships and these like implicit business constraints. We've identified the sensitive information and then we have transformed it according to that utility privacy right. trade-off that we've talked about. So then, you know, you go into the UI or you use our API or whatever and you hit generate data. And that actually begins the process of moving data from production or a copy of it into some output database likely that's sitting in your staging or development environment. I was about to ask this, so yeah. Great. So uh, there's a few things that can happen at this point, and I think they're both really interesting. Tonic can actually subset that data as it's moving into your staging environment. It is super common that our customers have like five, 10 terabyte databases. They're huge. Like you Mm -hmm. might not want all of that data in staging all the time, or maybe you want it in staging, but you don't want it in the dev environments and maybe you don't want it in local dev environments because it's just too big to carry around, right? No, give it all to me. Give all it all of to it. you. Okay, all right. Well, you know, some people say that, but sometimes you actually, you do want to subset it. Now, yeah. subsetting though is incredibly challenging because the database has foreign keys. You can't just randomly mm-hmm. choose rows from every table and hope it works because it, it almost certainly right. won't, right? Like you you have to opportunist, not opportunistically, but you have to intelligently not copy over certain rows while not breaking your referential integrity. And that's the thing that Tonic mm-hmm. also does. And and where we've really seen that help our customers lately is back to the, what you talked about at the beginning with the um, wanting a local dev database, like local meaning running on your laptop. Well, you apply the transformations as we talked about. You do a subset. So you, you bring that one terabyte database down to, you know, five, 10 gigs, something like that. And then you throw it in a Docker container. And then developers mm-hmm. moving forward can just pull the Docker container they need that has the, the version of the database they need with the schema and the tonic data, and then they can go develop. And it's a very frictionless experience for the the end user, which in this case is the developer. Yeah, that's awesome. I oh, will I will yeah, point out I don't have a 10 terabyte drive in my computer. So Yeah, I most folks uh, I would need I would need a subset. Right. Yeah. But. I I think, you know, most folks aren't carrying like a, a raid array in their in their backpack or or whatever. And then there, there's one other part to all this. And, and this gets asked very often by our customers. It's like, okay, well, we you guys found the PII, we added some of our own, we applied the transformations. How private is this data? Right. Okay. Right. I, I I've done what I think is good. Is it good? I mean, there's ten thousand columns. What do I know? Right? Right. So it comes down then to we call in tonic generation reports. Oh shoot, maybe they're called privacy reports. Well, generation or privacy reports. I actually don't remember the exact right. uh, the exact name of it in the UI at the moment. But these are reports that that give you like a a high level overview of like okay, what's been done? How private do we think it is? And then in the future, actually, these reports are also going to include information of how realistic the data is. Like here's here's the original distribution. Here's the new distribution. You know, kind of compare them. What do mm-hmm. they look like? Makes sense. Now, when we're talking about deliverables, I mean, I, I really love personally, the idea of, yeah, I'll just spin up this other container for the database and off we run, right? Staging, you can kind of get away with some of the same stuff depending on how you're set up. But I've also seen systems where it's just like, you know, periodically, we just want to just blow away the old database and put a new one in. And so they may, instead of wanting that, they may want like a SQL file that they can just import into their database and stuff like that. I'm assuming you deliver something like that. So we we actually don't. It's intentional, though. But we, mm-hmm. we provide ways for the customer to do it themselves. So like okay. you know, in, in SQL Server, for example, you, I think the backup files are like .back files, B-A-K. Mm-hmm. Um, so using that as an example, or, or maybe using Postgres because I'm more familiar with it, right. 
everything that you do in Tonic can be done programmatically through our REST API. Right. So it's really common for customers to like trigger jobs via Airflow, for example, right? Or like through a cron job or through Postman or really mm-hmm. just through any mechanism right. they like for shooting off API requests and scheduling right. them. And then once a job finishes, they can either pull Tonic to know when it finishes or get a webhook notification when a job is finished. And at that point, it's like fairly straightforward in like Python or any other scripting language to then generate that backup file of the Tonic output database. Right. Yeah. So like, for example, you you fire the job, you wait for it to finish, then you go call PG dump on your Postgres database, giving you the file that you need. And then you can go put that in wherever Mm -hmm. you like, S3, Artifactory, whatever suits you. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess on your CI/CD machine, this is or deal, it's the same thing, right? You're just like, okay, here's your database container, here's your That's app right. container. It could really be done. I mean, given that it can all be done programmatically, you can really do whatever you like. Like if if the if the tonic job runs very fast, then CI/CD could just kick off a new job and wait a minute for the job to finish. If the job is slower, then maybe they are the database is already existing somewhere and CI/CD knows where it is, or maybe it's mm-hmm. just pulling down a Docker container that was previously created. There, there's plenty of options. Right. How do you do this with like a mobile app? Do you mean how is, can you operate Tonic as an end user of Tonic via your iPhone? Or do you mean no. for something else? No, so I'm imagining like, uh, let's say that I have like patient management stuff for my doctor's office. Yeah, like on your on an and, iPad. The patient and on my in, iPad or iPhone, yeah. Yeah, sure, sure. So I write that software and I want to test it against data on the iPhone. Oh, right. interesting. So, like, I don't know a lot about mobile phones and, mm-hmm. and, like, the technology stacks. Like, in terms of, like, local storage on the phone, we, we have no support for that today. But, like, typically those services would reach out to a web server that's actually mm-hmm. querying a database. And yep. really, that just, at that point, we don't care if it's a mobile application or a web app or anything else, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we care that we've generated a de-identified output database and that whatever the application is, is able to connect and not, like, mm-hmm. instantly catch on fire because... The data right. is not where it thinks it should is not where it thinks it should be. Yeah. So ninety nine percent of the mobile apps, yeah, they yeah they yeah, have I some back it, I think back end system. Yeah. Yeah, but like let's say the mobile app is like actually saving files to like the storage. No, that mm-hmm. that's not something we would typically interface with. Yeah, but that's fine because you anyway it it'll do its own caching and local storage for the yeah mobile exactly app. So exactly but it, can, it yes. can pull it store it and then test it. Yes, I, I something like that I think sounds reasonable. I actually I I mean. I know many of our customers have mobile apps. Some of them I actually am a user of. So I, but I've never heard them mention anything specific about mobile apps. Right. So I, I believe what you're saying is correct. Yeah, that makes sense. So I get, one other thing that I'm wondering about is, and this is specific to Tonic, right? A lot of the stuff that we've talked about, it's like you could go make these decisions on your own and write a script on your own, right? You don't have a lot of the nice tooling. It, Tonic is shortcuts a whole bunch of this effort and get you down the line so you can go build features, which I think is where most people want to live. I don't enjoy spending a bunch of time on the tooling. It feels like it's busy work where I could actually be delivering value to my client or whatever, right? But one thing I am wondering is how does Tonic ingest the data in the first place, right? Because ultimately, I have to give you unredacted or whatever access to my data, right? And so that opens a bunch of questions up as far as like, do I give you a copy of the database? Do you have access to the primary database? What security measures do you take? Right. Right. So that that's a great question. And it's it's typically like, it's maybe not the first question we get asked on sales calls, but definitely the second or third. Tonic, right. I know you can solve my problem. Now, right, how do but, you not become yeah, a problem? 
Exactly, exactly. So it's actually a really simple answer. Tonic uh, ships on-prem. So we package Tonic Ooh. up as a Docker container, and then our customers deploy that container however they see fit. It could be via Docker Compose on EC2. Mm-hmm. Uh, they could put it in ECS or EKS. We provide Helm charts. We have folks using various containerization technologies like uh, Nomad. Really, it's it's whatever suits them. And the, the whole motivation behind that is, like, Tonic is used for databases that are incredibly sensitive. Mm-hmm. Most of our customers would would never send their data outside of their networks. So it requires Tonic to be installed in their networks, essentially. Yep. That makes a lot of sense because then it's, I mean, the Docker container is completely auditable, right? I can go 100%. in, I can see, I may not be able to see your code depending on what it's written in, right, directly, but sure. I can see what's coming in and going out of it over That's the right. network. I can. That's right look and see what packages you have installed. I can see if your operating system's up to date on the Docker Oh, container. yeah. All, we, we right. get all that stuff all is completely transparent to me. It is. And, and going, so that makes going, a lot of sense. Going beyond that, I mean, we have customers that run Tonic completely air-gapped. So they, they install Tonic on servers without public internet access. Mm-hmm. And that's perfectly fine. The tool by default does not phone home. Right. Which Which also makes sense. But even if I didn't trust you, I can I can audit what's going in and out on the network yes. on oh, the yeah. Docker container. Absolutely. So, and like you said, like our, our customers scan our containers before yeah. they push them up to their own repos. We stay pretty up to date with security issues. But you know, sometimes a customer will their scanner will give a different result than ours and they'll they'll mm-hmm. they'll see an issue that's a medium that we thought was a low or you know, there's there yeah. are like disparities sometimes, but we, we resolve right. them very quickly. Well, ultimately it allows me to have peace of mind. Because I mean, that's right. We uh, the thing that's coming to mind is like Solar Winds, right? Security software that legitimately had a supply chain hack, right? Yep. And it wasn't it wasn't their fault in the sense that they were actively trying to compromise machines, but the reality is is they had a supply chain hack that compromised machines, right? That's right. And so if I'm concerned about, hey, did they miss something? I can go look. That's right. And that I, that's what I like about it. That, yeah, absolutely. And that's why, like on on the tonic side, I mean, we take our own SDLC very seriously. Uh, we're currently going through SOC 2. Where of these things? And it's mm-hmm. and, and the faith that our customers are putting in us, even though the tool is running on-prem, but we we take that very seriously. Yep, absolutely. Well, the other thing is, yeah, then you're talking about the, hey, the data never leaves. It's on-prem, right? It never goes anywhere you don't want it to. It doesn't ever, yeah. That's right. And so at the end of the day, yeah, I have ultimate control uh, over that. And in a lot of these cases, I have to. So yes. Well, I'll say this, the the fact that we are on-prem and that we can run AirGap definitely short circuits a lot of security uh, conversations right. that we have with our customers, which is great. Yep. So if I wanted to go try this out, I mean, is there a good way for me to say, oh, well, maybe this is the right solution? Do I call someone? Is there a free version? I mean, I people have all kinds of approaches to this, right? That's right. So if one of your listeners wants to try this out, I would suggest to him or her to go to tonic.ai and mm-hmm. sign up for a demo. And okay. you'll be you'll be given a demo by one of our awesome sales folks. You'll possibly even be joined on the call with me. I sometimes join these demos as well and answer questions. Uh, and mm-hmm. you'll get to see exactly what the tool is about. You can also, I believe, I'm not sure where it is on the website, but you can kind of register on the website and view like past webinars and demos that we've given at different like, you know, trade shows and conferences and just webinars, like I said, and kind of get a feel for how the product works and how it operates. And it'll give you a pretty good idea of, of you know, what's in store. Makes sense. If there's somebody that this is just an absolute slam dunk for, I mean, who's kind of your ideal customer who's going to come in and, you know, they're going to use Tonic for 10 minutes and go, Oh my gosh, life's so much better. That's right. 
it's really i mean this is this is broad but i'm going to say it right it, it's any company with an engineering team that deals with customer data and it's and your team is you're currently struggling with having high quality dev and test data right if, if you want mm-hmm. something that like genuinely looks and feels like production. It's the same scale, it's the same structure and schema. It's got the same inner column relationships. Then Tonic is going to make your life a lot easier. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I, I think people run into this pain at, at some point in any application that's long lived right. at all. Oh, absolutely. So. And the pain is a is kind. Of, it can be a function of your company size and of the industry mm-hmm. you're in. Right. I think what we've kind of found, and I haven't, I have not like done an analysis of this, but like companies of any size that are in healthcare or finance can use Tonic, mm-hmm. whether they're a startup or they're a Fortune 500 company. But typically, like like B two C companies typically use us when they're a little larger. Like you know, like right. it, it would be uncommon for a B two C startup to use Tonic, even though I think everyone mm-hmm. should. But it's super common, like for startups in like certain industries with very sensitive data to want to use Tonic early on just to get themselves right. off on the right foot. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we all take so many approaches to protect customer data. I mean, sometimes from ourselves, right? I mean, that's why people use stuff like Stripe, right? Is because then I don't have to comply with the financial yes. regulations, right? But the reality is, is I'm still capturing data from my customers, right? That's right. Whether I intend to or not. And so having something like this that can go in and say, hey, now you can send this up to CICD without worrying about compromising anybody's security or anybody's personal data. Yeah, this just seems like a really, really powerful way to go. So that was tonic.ai. And yeah, go sign up for a demo. That's I might right. go sign up for a demo. Do it. Oh, that would be so happy. <laughs> All right. Well, the other thing that I tend to offer people as part of this deal is, first of all, if people have more questions, is there a way that they can reach you directly? I don't know if it's Twitter or somewhere um, else if, if folks want to send an email they can definitely send it to hello at tonic.ai um, okay. and and I'll, I'll see it but yeah i mean i think we're, we're also on twitter you can certainly tweet at us mm-hmm. but i think you know signing up for a demo on the website is is definitely the the quickest way to get started if you're interested in using tonic at your place you work very cool well i certainly appreciate you coming on and talking about this i think this is one area where you don't think about until you're going okay how the heck do i do this so that's right yeah all right, we're going to go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. We'll wrap it up here, folks. And until next time, Max out.